We are back and you are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here into our process and how we make the shows we do. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. However, to our discussion today, and this was a very, very unique show, I wrote a schedule for the show, as I always do, with 13 questions, and I proceeded to ask just one of those planned questions. The conversation was so natural and free-flowing that we just went freestyle with this one. And so with that, I'm so thrilled to welcome Vikas Bambari, SVP of sales and customer experience at Customer, the startup providing real-time, actionable views of customers with continuous omni-channel conversations and intelligence that automates repetitive manual tasks. To date, they've raised over $113 million in financing from some of the best in the business, including Tiger Global, Battery Ventures, Bold Start, Canaan, Cisco, and Redpoint, just to name a few. And prior to Customer, Vikas spent over 20 years implementing, consulting, marketing, and selling CRM and contact center solutions with companies like LivePerson, Oracle. And a huge thanks to the wonderful Mr. Brad Birnbaum for making the intro today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, ever feel like you really can't connect with your prospects or have an organized workflow to get deals closed? Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform, supports sales reps and their managers by making it simple to humanize and personalize communication at scale, automating the soul-sucking manual work and dramatically increasing the productivity and efficiency of all revenue-generating teams. You can check them out at Outreach.io reach.io forward slash Sasta to chat with them and receive a free copy of their new book, Sales Engagement, How the World's Fastest Growing Companies Are Modernizing Sales Through Humanization at Scale. And speaking of connecting with your customers there, the question is, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them today and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And last but by no means least, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Roger Devine, co-founder of SchoolAuction.net. SchoolAuction is the leading provider of software to help non-profit groups like PTAs, animal shelters, boys and girls clubs and chambers of commerce put on fundraising auctions. Hi, Harry. My advice is this. Be human. You can try and keep customers at the lowest pricing or the most features, but so can your competitors. Instead, try being the kind of business you yourself want to buy from. When people call us, a person answers the telephone, often even after business hours. It's kind of startling to them, but they really like it. Ask yourself, where could you add a welcome human touch? Love that from Roger. And being different and being human can really help you stand out. Another way to stand out can be the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough of Harry. And so now I'm very, very excited to hand over to Vikas Bambari, SVP of Sales and Customer Experience at Customer. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Vikas, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things from Brad, but thank you so much for joining me today. Harry, I'm uh, really excited to uh, be chatting, and uh, it's always good to hear an English accent in the morning, so looking forward to it. That is far too kind of you, if only everyone said that, but I want to kick off today with a little bit about you. So tell me, Vikas, I love the world of SaaS, but how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and come to be SVP of sales and customer today? Yeah, it's actually an interesting journey and unique in that, unlike most folks these 
days. A lot of them condemn their history with SaaS, starting at Salesforce as an example. I, I think I've listened to quite a few folks who started their journey there. I actually started it at Oracle and it was kind of by accident. So as I was making the move, I was actually based in the UK and was looking to transfer back to the US within Oracle. I got approached around this startup within Oracle called the CRM on demand group. So when Oracle acquired Siebel, funnily enough, they had this hidden gem, which was Siebel on demand, which was a SaaS CRM platform competing with the likes of salesforce.com that Oracle had acquired. So they asked me if I would like to be part of that group. And my answer was flat. No, I thought <laughs> CRM in the cloud, etc., was never going to, to be anything. So what do I know? Right. Three weeks later, I hosted a, a CIO breakfast in London and I had CIOs from some of the biggest banks in London, as well as some of the, the U.S. banks that had a you know, significant presence, you know, i.e. a JP Morgan in London. And to a person, they said they would never spend another penny in on-premise CRM. And I looked around the room and they all mentioned salesforce.com. And, and this is in the early days. And I said to myself, okay. So I made the call back and I said, listen, is that opportunity still available? And luckily for me, it was. And so when I moved back to the US, I was part of the, this group within Oracle to build out the CRM on demand business. And, and we did. And we did amazingly well in the early days competing with, with salesforce.com. So that's how I, I made my journey into SaaS was kind of by accident, but through the wisdom of these CIOs basically telling me that on-prem CRM was not a viable option for them anymore. And so that's how the journey began. I mean, my word, that's a very worthy breakfast. I'm sure you're glad you hosted that one. I do want to break the interview today up into a couple of different parts, really. I want to start on top down, maybe how the industry is changing and evolving and how especially the sales process is changing and evolving. And then maybe dive a little bit deeper on especially scaling sales and customer experience in particular. Does that work for you, Vikas? Absolutely. So if we start top down on the industry, we've chatted before and you said something very poignant to me, which is we're in the first wave of disruptors that are built to take out the godfathers of SaaS. Now, me loving anything to do with the godfather, I have to ask, who are the godfathers of SaaS first and why will they be replaced? Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the godfathers of SaaS, I think especially in our space, the two that come to mind are salesforce.com and Zendesk. And then if you look at some of the other areas outside of CRM, you see the likes of Workday, Success Factors, etc. This is kind of the wave I call SaaS 1.0. Why do I think these companies have a kind of an opportunity to be disrupted in their own right, as they once disrupted uh, many of the traditional on-premise vendors, is twofold. I think from one perspective, at the end of the day, technology does become dated. And the, the mere fact of just the advancements in tech that we're seeing through the likes of Amazon, Google, Facebook, that are putting open source technology out there, things that you can use to modernize your infrastructure at lower cost. One of the things that really has escaped a lot of folks is how challenging it is for a SaaS vendor to basically rip out parts of the engine as they're moving full speed ahead. You think about the number of customers that you put on the platform, and now you're trying to make changes, and it becomes a real challenge to do that in your core infrastructure because you're literally running 24 by 7 operations of customers on your platform. So for you to make changes, it becomes really difficult. So one is just the, the, the sheer technology aspect of it. The second is many of these companies have grown significantly and their product portfolio 
portfolios have grown as they've had to obviously acquire more revenue out of their existing customer base as they have acquired other technologies. And you've seen Salesforce with a number of significant acquisitions in the last 12 months as an example. So that in itself generates a complexity because as you have to remember, it truly is software as a service. And as you get bigger, more complex, more confusing to your customers, it becomes harder for you to deliver that service. So I think there's an opportunity for what I look at as the second wave, companies like Customer, Dialpad, et cetera, coming in and being very focused in an area and owning that and thus disrupting those traditional vendors. So I have to say, I do listen to the thesis and I do find myself nodding my head at 99% of it. The 1% of me that goes, ah, but wait, is the element of consolidation and what could happen in that respect. Obviously, Salesforce in your work days have such large balance sheets. How do you think about actually it just generating a wave of consolidation, even in the billions of dollars? We saw Adaptive Insights being bought for 1.3, I think it was, by Workday. You know, the numbers are huge that they can pay. Is this not just a natural market for consolidation? It is and it isn't. I think there's certainly an opportunity to consolidate, as you've seen, you know, uh, different technologies being acquired by, by these larger players with these amazing balance sheets. But I think what it boils down to is also how newer technology is being developed and the ability for it to interoperate with other platforms. What we're seeing is where once upon a time people were looking at best of breed software, then everybody went to the suite approach and, and you know suddenly you had the likes of the net suites, the Oracle, ERPs, the SAPs, etc. Now you're seeing people saying, look, I can really kind of assemble without major IT overhead and challenges, the best in breed in different subject areas. So I can bring in a customer for customer service. I can bring in a Marketo for marketing, et cetera, and assemble with a very low cost overhead, these best of breed solutions to do what they were meant to do, the subject area that I'm trying to deal with them. So I think that's an interesting thing that has enabled the buyer, the companies that we deal with. And the other thing is the flexibility of SaaS, where I can now hold these vendors accountable to their subject matter. And if they don't work out, I can swap them out, right? So really going back to that service, which once again, I think a lot of customers that I deal with on a regular basis, even those that are quote unquote wall to wall Salesforce feel that they're quote unquote locked in. And I think going back to the change in the buyer behavior, that's not a place that people want to feel, right? That's how they felt 20 years ago with the on-premise vendors that I'm now locked in. They don't want to be back in that same position now with the SaaS vendors. Can I ask, do you not think actually even in the world of SaaS, we still have incredible amounts of lock-in, be it managed databases, be it storage repositories of data that are locked into platforms specifically? Do you not think that actually we've just transferred to cloud lock-in versus on-prem lock-in? I do think so in the terms of the SaaS 1.0 vendors, right? I think a lot of them were architected with that in mind. And, and what I often say to folks is for every dollar that a SaaS vendor gets, there's another probably $20 in an ecosystem of ISV partners, systems integrators, et cetera, that are making money off of that $1 that the SaaS vendor is making. So, you know, there's a lock-in, not only from a technology aspect, but just from the ecosystem around it. And I think what's happened now is people are starting to feel like me, even moving systems, getting off of one platform and moving to another is a challenge. I think where we're seeing is really opening it up where we're making it really easy here at customer for customers to really get their data out of our systems, seamlessly integrate it with 
other applications. And at the end of the day, yes, it puts more onus on us to constantly innovate and deliver a quality service. But I think what I'm hearing for our customers is just the mere ability to get data out of our system in real time and then do things with it. It makes them feel more comfortable that they're not being locked in and they're not having that, like you said, the traditional database environment where just the mere thought of moving off of one system to another now invokes army of systems integrators, you know, kind of invading my premises. Totally. I mean, I love the lack of locking that you guys have. I think the question for me is if that clearly changes how you think about customer success and customer experience. In terms of the sales side, though, how does this fundamental transition in really how we engage with software, how does that change the sales process itself? Yes. So the sales process, it's changed dramatically, right? And, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and you're just seeing how it's changed. And I know there's everything written about how 57% or 68% of the buyer journey is done before they even engage a salesperson because so many people are researching online and I've got my own thought on that. But for me, it really comes to the sales process being about what is the challenge that the customer is trying to solve for. And if we look at that and at the very beginning of that journey, we say, what are we trying to solve for? And what are the KPIs that you guys are going to hold us as a partner accountable to? Then driving that through the sales process and constantly coming back to that, that as we architect a solution, as we think about how we're going to, which of our packages are you going to select? How are you going to integrate them, etc.? Constantly coming back to, are they going to meet the objectives of those KPIs? And that seamlessly flows through then when you hand off to the implementation team or the customer success team, are we meeting those KPIs? And to me, that's the true part of the software as a service, which frankly, I think a lot of people forget. And I think that's where, if you look at, we're very proud of, of our churn rate, being in market now for two years with 0% churn. And I think a lot of that being driven by this philosophy that the service starts at the very front of that sales cycle. I mean, I totally agree with you in terms of where the service starts. I, I guess my question is, how is service best embodied in sales? What does that actually look like in terms of the tangible customer relationship? Is that more of an ABM type approach? Well, ABM is interesting. And I, and I do think so much of it is driven by how and where you engage the customer, right? Whether they're coming to you because there's either an awareness in the market or something that they've read about or a particular problem they solve. And so much of the buyer journey today starts with simple word of mouth. In our world, in, in the customer experience, customer service space, there are so many forums where VPs of customer service partner on everything together from how do I train my teams, how do I incent them, etc., to then what technologies are you now using? So it's that. When we are going through an ABM approach and going through a concerted effort to approach the market, it's also going back to tying into the qualities and the problems that we solve. So rather than going in and, and touting we're the greatest, we're number one, and, and you know all of that, which fundamentally everybody says, it's more, look, here are the problems we solve. And at the end of the day, if you don't have these problems, God bless. And you, you, know, you go about your business and you, and you keep doing what you're doing. But if you are facing these problems, then A, we should talk. And then once we start that journey, then it's kind of, as I said, holding us accountable consistently through that process of, are we coming back to, is this still a problem? Is it a problem we solve? And I think that's how we approach the, the sales end of it. No, totally. And I love that approach. It's uh, far more kind of human and less transactional than I find a lot of sales processes, to be very honest. I do have to also, <laughs> having just said about less transactional, we mentioned KPIs. KPIs are a big one for me, especially for you now as SVP of sales. How do you think about setting on the KPI side, ambitious enough KPIs that people really 
really have to stretch, but also not too ambitious that they'll get very disheartened if they don't hit them. How do you fit that nice balance? Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Because I think there's so much involved in it. You know, you, you look at where people look at metrics and they look at on-target earnings. And in a SaaS business, you want to be anywhere from four to six X, your on-target earnings from a quota perspective. What I have worked on and worked with my leadership team, my peers, with Brad and finance, as well as our board, is there's different points in the journey as you go through that. Meaning, I think where a lot of people come in and they look at a rule of thumb and they say, okay, we're going to go to 6x right out of the gate, not understanding that your infrastructure needs to catch up. And what are you expecting your salespeople to do? And so one of the things as an early stage company, I came into the realization when, when I joined customers, look, we're going to get to those optimized metrics, but we're not going to be there day one because we're going to ask our salespeople to do more than just sell out of the gate, right? We're going to ask them to build territories, build awareness, create their own pipeline, et cetera, especially in the mid-market enterprise, which you also have to understand also takes time. It's not, you know, an SMB where, you know, you're getting a, a volumes of a hundred a day. So with that in mind, you have to set optimized metrics, but also making sure that your team is aware that, look, it is going to change over time because the brand will grow. The deal sizes will grow, all of that. And I think if you pitch that early on and you don't suddenly show up one day with $10 million quotas, people understand that that is a journey that they're going to be part of. And I think transparency is, is something I'm really proud of. You know, in fact, I'm hosting my QBR in, in New York this week. And that's one of the things that we have so many new team members. I'm very transparent with where the business is, how we're doing it, why we're going about it and getting them bought into that journey that they're on. No, listen, I, I do totally agree. And I love the transparency that you instill within the team. Again, so unfair of me, but more things that I have to unpack. You mentioned Please. that the almost differentiated role of sales and the versatility of the role that you really kind of offer with customer in terms of kind of what salespeople do, new chat, new territories, new processes, new structures. How do you think about sales rep onboarding? It's the biggest question that I get from new, maybe first time founders. I've hired my first sales reps. How the fuck do I onboard them? (laughs) (laughs) This is an interesting one, right? Because here's how I've gone about it. And I think where I think a lot of startups make the mistake or early stage companies is they think they can do everything. And what I mean by that is they think they can bring in people, quote unquote, freshers or fresh off the street and teach them how to sell, teach them subject matter expertise. And then they're left scratching their heads when people are unable to be successful. I've taken a different approach. And my approach is, look, we cannot, as an early stage company, teach you how to sell. There are great companies out there that have entire infrastructures, teams, investments around teaching people how to sell. So why am I going to go and try to do that? Why not get somebody who's already been through that program, number one. Number two, this will vary depending on the area you're in. For me, I'm very fortunate that we're in a space that has been around. The contact center is not brand. So for me, I can not only get people who have sales experience, but I can actually get people that have subject matter expertise. So those are two things that I look for in every candidate. And then ultimately, what my responsibility is and my organizational responsibility is to teach you how to sell and position customer. And that's why I'm able to get people out of the gate really quickly. Now, having said that, even then I need to invest in that enablement. So one of the things that I did pretty early on here, as we knew we were going to scale the team was I set up an enablement function. And so I've got somebody who leads an enablement function and we've built out an entire playbook curriculum. And it's really interesting to bring in people from those SaaS 1.0 vendors, the Zendesks and the sales forces that have really deep pockets and huge infrastructure 
years and they come back and say, your onboarding is as good, if not better than what I've experienced at these mature companies. So something I've definitely invested in and then putting the other pieces around it, such as revenue operations, the right tooling. So acquiring the right software, as well as then sales engineering and other supporting functions. Totally get you. No, absolutely. I I do have the other element to ask in terms of unpacking. You said there about mid-marketing and not having the same velocity of SMBs. A couple of questions on this. Clearly don't get out enough if I have a couple of questions on mid-market versus SMB, but let's go for it. On the mid-market actual deal size, how do you think about Tom Tungas before has written and said that mid-market is a very tough space because it's almost no man's land in SaaS pricing. How do you feel having mastered and navigated that landscape very, very well with customer for the last few years? Yeah. So first of all, Tomas is, as you know, one of our board members. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I was being a slight contrarian with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm very fortunate to get his wisdom firsthand. And, and he understands our, our metrics, what we're doing as a business and you know how we're going about it. I think, so the interesting thing for us is, one, it has a lot to do with our platform itself and how it kind of enables that transformation and that scale that, that people are looking to hit. But I think from the, the mid-market perspective, we find that the pricing piece of it, it's not only that the buyers are kind of more self-aware, have the infrastructure around it and have kind of navigated and many of them coming from the SaaS 1.0 vendors already have that experience and kind of know what they're getting into. So they're kind of a more seasoned or mature buyer. But once they engage, it's not as fast as a transactional SMB sales cycle, but it actually does move fairly quickly. And what we see is kind of 90 to 120 days for them to get through that evaluation and that, you know, that buyer selection process. So it is pretty interesting. And then I think that the fortunate thing for us is that they really want to partner for a sustained period. So, you know, looking at multi-year deals and how they really engage us as part of their core strategy in customer service going forward. I think this is an episode where I should be famed for tearing up the schedule entirely. You mentioned there the payback being 90 to 120 days. It's another thing that founders always ask me, which is, I know VCs look at payback. What's good payback? What would you advise founders in terms of the paybacks that they should be aiming for and whether or not they should actually be prioritizing it at certain phases of company growth. Yeah, look, at, at the end of the day, and, and I know CAC is one term that, you know, it, it's amazing how often it gets brought up. I think you are going to over-invest in the early days, right? I mean, that's just something you have to wrap your head around. And I think as long as there is an awareness that, yes, we want to get to, you know, it's like I talked about on the comp side, that yes, there are best-in-class metrics and we aspire to get to them. But in the early days, it's really what are we building for? And if you're looking to build a sustained business model, you are going to invest early on. And as long as you're tracking it and you're saying, look, at certain periods, it's got to come down, right? Our our payback has to hasten, completely respect that and appreciate it. But it's going to take time as once again, we build brand, we acquire customers, we have those customers out there speaking on our behalf because you're going to, when people factor these things in, I mean, you're looking at all your investment, whether it be on the marketing front or the sales front, and you're going to front load it to get that market scale. So I think that's one of the things where I, I'm pretty fortunate between Tomas, between Neeraj and, and Brad is having those conversations that, yes, we want to get better, but it is going to happen over time and it's not going to happen you know, at the snap of a finger day one. And I think that's where, you know, speaking to some of my peers and some of the pressures they're under, it's that, you know, lack of realization where everybody wants to hit those best in class metrics right out of the gate. And that just, to me, is a very challenging environment to put your teams in. No, I totally agree. And I think it's probably 
probably a SAS podcast with terrible British podcast hosts that say these wonderful metrics that are to blame for. <laughs> I'm so sorry for that. But I do, I do have to ask, you said also about multi-year. I'm always quite confused by multi-year in the way that essentially, if it's not an upfront payment, you're just switching renewal from customer success to the finance team. How do you think about the benefits of multi-year? Should you always go for multi-year? And are you not also potentially losing price optimization on the next year with price changes potentially? Yeah, that's a great point. And, and that's why it gives protection to the customer as well, right? It, you know, in terms of them being able to forecast out for their budget purposes, their spend, their expenditure, what it would be over two or three years. I think one of the things that we as the vendor have to look at is, you know, how do we become more efficient over that period? And so that yeah, certainly puts a, a challenge on the engineering team to look at. But I, I think it's a win-win because for us, at the end of the day, you know, I look at the contact center as a core solution. And so people don't want to have to necessarily think about renegotiating or having that situation come up where maybe the vendor does gouge them on, on pricing after year one or whatever it is. So I think it's a win-win. And for us, it does create that environment where we have to keep delivering an amazing service. However, we can also kind of see our run rate out for the next 18, 24 months, where it's amazing to me, companies that kind of have even month-to-month contracts, where how do you forecast out the business, right? And then that becomes a very challenging environment. And so you're certainly right. You can't suddenly go up to a customer after year one and suddenly say, hey, our price has gone up from 100 to 200. But I do think as a SaaS business, one of the things we're all looking at on a consistent basis is actually how do we continue to optimize and run a more efficient service, even from a technology perspective? No, I'm totally with you. And I think it's absolutely the the, uh, right train of thinking. So absolutely aligned on that. I am aware that we've covered half of your role in immense detail in terms of the sales, which I love. In terms of the customer experience, I am super interested because, you know, we have many different names and a huge amount of nomenclature around roles today in SaaS. (laughs) How do you define customer experience today without being too dumb a question? And how is it different from customer success? So for us, customer experience is three core areas of the business. It's professional services. So the team that actually goes in and implements the platform. And and today we do that all ourselves uh, with our internal team. Customer success. So the team that manages the success and the health of our customers and then our support team. So those are the three functions that roll up into our customer experience that I now manage alongside sales. Got it. Okay. That makes total sense. Again, schedule professional services super interesting one because a lot of vcs sometimes kind of pull a face or squirm when they hear professional services how do you think about professional services what kind of level of margins do you like actually this is a comfortable and strong part of our business how do you think about it i can completely understand why they grimace right and for us it's definitely you know as i mentioned earlier it's one of those investments that we're making early on because for us these first thousands of thousands of customers is critical for our our long-term success, right? So for us, every one of them needs to be delivered with an optimal solution so that we, you know, we can have the likes of you know, Rent the Runway and Glossier out there touting the benefits of partnering and working with customers. So it's not something in, you know, at this stage of the game that we're willing to, to hand off. And frankly, that you know, goes back to what I said. You know, with, with so much of the, the SaaS 1.0 vendors, we talk to customers now that say, look, my relationship is no longer with that vendor. It's actually with company XYZ 
XYZ that's doing the services work. And that creates a, a great opportunity for us in the market. So I think from that standpoint, it's definitely an, an early investment that we're making. I think something that we will look to diversify over, over time. We're already starting to engage on that front, but want to be very selective and well thought out into our strategy around that and who we work with, right? So I, like I said, I can completely understand why the VCs would grimace on that. But I think for us, it's definitely an early stage investment as both we as a company and the platform continue to mature. No, I absolutely agree with you in terms of the brilliance that they can do in terms of retention with customers, especially. I do have to ask, in terms of kind of customer success, then if we move from professional services to customer success, it's one of the hot topics in SaaS today, obviously, as you know. How do you think about when's the right time to build it out as a separate function within your company? Yeah, so we built it out pretty early on. And the reason being, as I said, we've got enterprise and large mid-market customers. And so for us, that was extremely critical, once again, not only to strengthen the relationship, but give them a, an opportunity and a voice. Because many customers that partner with early stage companies, one of the reasons they do it, not only because you have great technologies, because they want a seat at the table. They want to be able to invest and give you feedback on your strategy. And so otherwise, they're hanging out with the product team every day, right? So for, mm -hmm. for us, it was a critical function in not only maintaining those relationships and doing the quarterly business reviews, etc., but also giving them a sounding board as to how we can continue to improve both as a platform and as a partner. So that's why I invested in the role pretty early on and in fact have grown it probably faster than some would say. I mean, I, I actually now have a team of five people that are they're focused on this. And because I, once again, I think it's so critical early on to get those customers engaged, get their stories, get their feedback and make them really be part of that journey as you continue to grow your company. I couldn't agree more. I always say kind of turn customer success into customer acquisition channels. So totally with you there. And it's fantastic to hear about the, the growth and the investment you put in early on. Because as you can tell, uh, I've covered none of the schedule, but I've so enjoyed the chat. <laughs> I do, I do want to dive into the quick fire round now. So I say a short statement. You give me your thoughts in 60 seconds or less. Are you ready to roll? Let's do it. Okay, so what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time at Customer? Hire the next level of leadership sooner. That's the one thing I wish I would have done. At one point, I think I had probably about 20 people reporting directly to me just because we were growing so fast. And that was not only unfair to me, <laughs> but frankly, unfair to them. So feedback I'd give my younger self is hire that next level of leadership sooner rather than later. Speaking of hiring, building diverse teams, what's your secret? Because you have excelled at this. Yeah, look, it's still a challenge. I'm not going to lie. But I actually think one of the things that helps is being, quote unquote, a, a diverse person myself, not fitting maybe a lot of the traditional mold of who a sales leader is, how they get to be a sales leader and what, what they look like. I mean, I think that certainly helps. And then I think understanding that, look, you need the best talent and the best talent comes in all shapes, sizes and colors. And the buyer, frankly, is also a diverse pool. And so you need to be able to, to have diverse teams to frankly make yourselves better because the ideas, the thoughts, the experiences, that's what salespeople are all about. If you think you're going to get cookie cutter salespeople, good luck. I really like to get individuals that bring, I always say, bring your flavor to the dance every day. I love that. Tell me, the sales leader you most respect and admire and why? So I had the benefit of working for Erica Schultz, who is the global CRO over at New Relic. And I worked for her at Oracle and I worked for her at LivePerson and, and kind of got to see firsthand side by side of what it takes, the level of due diligence, looking at the data, but also at times going 
with your gut, bringing in the right people around you, people who at times might be smarter than you in certain areas. Erica is somebody I tremendously respect and value and, and who I uh, had the opportunity to learn from firsthand. And I listen, I loved having her on the show. Very special episode indeed. Tell me, discounting, is it always bad? And um, what's your thinking on discounting? <laughs> You know, discounting, it's an interesting one. Look, I think so much of it is just driven by, you know, the buyer behavior. And I think, you know, I often laugh when I hear people talking about, you know, you know, you need to sell value. Your finance peers will always tell you, why are you discounting? You need to sell value. I think there is a certain thing where, you know, so many of the buyers go to their own procurement schools and seminars, etc. So it's created a very interesting thing. My thing with anything if, if on discounting is what am I getting back in return? This is a partnership and we're going to give, what are we getting back in return? And that to me is, is the real discussion and the true sense of partnership. And that's exactly how I approach it when I am dealing in a negotiation process with a customer is we're going to partner, you want a discount, but how are we going to make this a win-win for both parties? And I, I think that's been a very successful approach. Yeah, no, absolutely. And couldn't agree with you more that. And the final one though that I, I do love to ask and is if you could change one thing about the world of SaaS today, what would it be and why? So if I could change the one thing about SaaS in its whole, I would say is really it's the S. You know, the, the service piece of it, I think we all need to revisit and focus on. I think that's one where you mentioned earlier, you know, are we just running a different business model or technology model from the traditional on-prem vendors? And so for me, that's kind of a big focus as, you know, we look to deliver customer service ourselves, but also enable the customers that use our platform to deliver that service. So to me, you know, every business now is a subscription business. I don't, I don't care whether you're a B2B high tech software company or you're selling clothing. So for me, it's, it's all about focusing on the S in, in, in the service. Listen, because as I said at the beginning, I had so many great things from Brad. I can't thank you enough for putting up with my creativity on that, leaving <laughs> the schedule so fast, but it's been so much fun. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll continue to be a listener. You are a hero. Thank you so much for that, Vikas. What did I tell you? Such a special guest to have on the show. And as I said, absolutely no questions from the schedule were asked other than the intro. So that was a, a surely an interesting one for Vikas. Poor chap. But I do want to say a huge thank you again, Tim, for giving up the time. If you'd like to see more from us, you can find us on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It really would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, did you know that more than half of your customers' digital time is spent on mobile? Well, that's why every digital brand needs a mobile strategy. But as an app marketer, you need to understand the true ROI of your mobile app to be able to make smarter decisions. Adjust takes the guesswork out and provides data-driven insights to drive more effective mobile campaigns, empowering mobile app marketers to convert and retain their most valuable users, answering core questions like, which marketing campaigns perform the best? Where are my most valuable users coming from? How can I boost my retention rates? Essentially, Adjust gives you the ability to make better informed marketing decisions. And if you want to learn more about the ways Adjust can help you drive more results for your mobile app, visit adjust.com forward slash saster. And if Adjust covers the world of mobile, Lob's making the world programmable. Lob's software platform automates age-old offline business processes in a modern, intelligent, and technology-forward way. For example, they allow you to programmatically send personalized postcards, letters, and checks to your customers with comprehensive, per-piece mail tracking and analytics. But don't take my word for it. With clients like Booking.com, HelloFresh, SeatGeek, and more all loving it, there's no doubt on this one. Lob is the best platform there is for turning address quality and direct mail into competitive advantages for your business. Check it out today 
stay at lob.com. And last but by no means least, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Roger Devine, co-founder of SchoolAuction.net. SchoolAuction is the leading provider of software to help non-profit groups like PTAs, animal shelters, boys and girls clubs, and chambers of commerce put on fundraising auctions. Hi, Gary. My advice is this. Be human. You can try and keep customers at the lowest pricing or the most features, but so can your competitors. Instead, try being the kind of business you yourself want to buy from. When people call us, a person answers the telephone, often even after business hours. It's kind of startling to them, but they really like it. Ask yourself, where could you add a welcome human touch? Love that from Roger. And being different and being human can really help you stand out. Another way to stand out can be the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I cannot thank you enough for tuning in. And I can't wait to take you to the other side of the table next week is the investor side of the table with a very special episode.